Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. Stephen Sondheim died at the age of 91 on November 26, 2021, a titan of American musical theater whose work both transcended and changed the genre itself. Sondheim was responsible for the lyrics for Gypsy and West Side Story, and the lyrics and music for his own shows, Company, Follies, A Little Night Music, Sweeney Todd, Sunday in the Park with George, Into the Woods, Assassins, all became classics in the field. I interviewed Stephen Sondheim twice. The first time, which we hear now, came about with the publication of Finishing the Hat, the first of his two-volume autobiography-slash-lyric collection. Catherine Zuckerman of Knopf Books helped set it up. I was supposed to do the interview over Thanksgiving 2009 in New York, but he chose to stay at his house in Connecticut for a few extra days that weekend. In apology, he gave me his seats to the first preview night of the Broadway revival of A Little Night Music starring Catherine Zeta-Jones and Angela Lansbury. I took my mom. My mother, six years older than Sondheim, had been going to Broadway shows since 1938, with I Married an Angel starring Vera Zarina. I even have the stage door autograph she got. My mom saw the original Oklahoma, South Pacific, all of them. I wrote Sondheim that her favorite show of all time was Follies. Afterward, he emailed me to ask what we thought of A Little Night Music. He had still not seen the show in its entirety. I gushed, of course. My mom, though, gave him notes. Angela Lansbury was great, she said. Yes, he answered. She was mesmerizing. He was concerned, though, about her memory, as was she. The actor playing Hendrick, my mom said, that's the son, he was too cartoonish. Yes, Sondheim said. He agreed. And Catherine Zeta-Jones, my mom said, sings Send in the Clowns. She needs to act it. He said, yes, we are really working on her with that. Anyway, several months later, he came to San Francisco for a lecture, and I spoke with him in his hotel room using a new digital microphone I did not understand. He was in a foul mood. The trip from New York had taken 12 hours, and he'd barely slept. The whole thing, at the time, felt like a disaster. After the interview, I checked on the sound quality, and it was terrible. A friend of mine helped whip it into shape, and I edited it down to around 48 minutes. It ran in two parts in 2010. Sondheim sent a note of apology for his behavior. You haven't met the real Stephen Sondheim, he said. And a year later, I did a second interview at his house in New York. But he was again in a foul mood. But that time, the sound quality was good, and that interview has run a couple of times, and if you go to the kpfa.org page for this podcast, you can listen to it. This one has not run in its entirety since 2010. Stephen Sondheim, since the title of the book is Finishing the Hat, a song from 1985 Sunday in the Park with George, it sounds as if you intended this to be one volume, but it just kept growing and growing. I said to the publisher it could only be sold to Olympic shot putters, so I decided to do it in two volumes. And I understand that the original idea was 15 years ago, but you finally decided to get to it two years ago at the completion of Roadshow then? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. When you were working on it, what revelations happened? Did it just grow and grow and grow? It's not a question of growing because it was really just chronological. No, no real revelations. I look back at some old stuff and some of the cutout stuff and actually, for the most part, liked it better than I'd remembered or in many cases, a number of cases, just plain forgotten when I started to go back through the stuff of cutouts and alternates. But I, I was pretty pleased. So if you call that a revelation, I suppose it's one, but no, not a lot, not a lot. 
Well, you were pretty harsh on yourself through a lot of that early work. I mean, at this point, I guess it's as if you're reading someone else's work. In a sense, it is. Yes, I'm fairly harsh on myself for sort of the journeyman one, which was Saturday night, which is my first. And then for West Side Story, which is something I wrote partly under duress. I'm critical, but I'm not quite as harsh. The introduction, you discuss lyric writing in depth. And I found that as someone who interviews authors, mostly novelists, that most of the principles that you discuss in terms of lyric writing are the same principles that writers have to deal with. Content dictates form, less is more, and God is in the details, which means you have to pay attention to everything. Right. Well put. I agree all the way through. Although, of course, Tolstoy might disagree about less is more. When you're working on a song, how do you know instinctively exactly how long it should be? Or is that something that comes out as late as rehearsal? Oh, no, not as late as rehearsal. No, it comes out as you're writing it. It's how much do you want to say? How much do you want to get accomplished in the song? And that sort of dictates when you stop. Like the opening of Sunny the Park with George, the title number, there's a huge amount of exposition to be laid in for the audience there. So the number can't be a short one. Whereas a song like Passion, Loving You, she has one thing to say, and so it should not be a long song. The songs that you write, you've also said they have to be clear, concise, and you pay close attention to how easy it is to sing, which I guess means ensuring that the diction could be understood. Diction and breath. Absolutely, diction and breath. Since I write always with actors or performers in mind, I think of what the difficulties or challenges or problems will be for a singer, not just in terms of diction and breath, but also in terms of emotional attack. You know, is the song true to what the character is feeling? Is there something for the actor to play? All that has to be taken into consideration, I think. But the main principle of everything is clarity. All, all the principles that you've stated that I state are all in the service of clarity, and that's clarity of intention and clarity of diction, and et cetera, et cetera. And it also has to be understood first time through. Right, exactly. A song can only be heard as it's being sung. You can't go back over it. You grew up under the tutelage of Oscar Hammerstein II. When your parents were divorced, he kind of became a surrogate father to you. Had you been listening to a lot of music? No, I, no it's just he was a songwriter. And, uh, and I liked the theater. Oh, I hadn't seen much by the time I was 11, which is when I met him. It was by osmosis I didn't immediately say I wanted to become a songwriter, but I went to a school where we put on a musical, and I wrote a musical there with two classmates. So I just got to like it, and I wanted to be what he was. And apparently he taught you how to structure a song, finding the character, the voice, how to tell a story, and practical stage directions as well. Mm -hmm. In your work, how conscious was that, and how did that become unconscious? Did it ever become unconscious? No, it's always, always conscious. You always got to think about such things as you're writing a show. <laughs> now, I don't have to think about it as much as the librettist does, or indeed as much as the director does, but you know, you have to allow time for somebody to change their costume. And that's a basic thing, and it sounds like an obviousness, but uh, I can't tell you the number of scripts I've read where I've said to somebody, well, wait a minute, how does she get into the street clothes? Oh, well, there's no answer. People don't think of that. They don't think of the practical side of the theater. The theater is a practical art. But Oscar was the one who who sort of put that in my brain, said, you know, what do you intend with this stage direction? And how do you get this chair onto the stage? Did he give you examples from his own work? No, 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 just from mine. I gave him this script that I wrote when I was 15, and in the, not even hope, but the assumption that he would want to immediately produce it on the stage. And he, he treated it as if it was a serious intent and treated me like an adult, which is, of course, exactly the way to teach. So he went right from the first stage direction on. And said, why, why does this character not reappear? What does she mean by this? She said this on page three. Why is she saying this on page 10? It's just lessons in basics. He told you that you should take a play you like, musicalize it. The idea was to take a play that I liked and thought was good and musicalize it. Then take a play that I thought that I liked, but that I thought could be improved and see if I could improve it as I was musicalizing it. Then take a story that I did not make up, but somebody else had made up, but that was not in dramatic form, in other words, like a short story or some non-play, non-theatrical form or a folk tale or whatever, and turn that into a musical, in which I would have to do all the dramatizing myself, but I didn't have to make up the characters and the plot. And then finally, 
make up the characters, make up the plot, and write the musical. And that's what I did. And two of those were Beggar on Horseback and High Tour. Looking back on them now, you don't include them any of the material. No, I, I debated including the, the stuff I wrote in school. Those were written in college. And I decided not to. I may, in the second volume, I might include a couple of very early songs in a chapter called Early Songs. But if I do, I'm certainly not going to include the entire score of the first show, which was called By George, which is one I wrote when I was 15 because I went to a school called George School. And it was all about, you know, campus shenanigans, thinly disguised versions of the faculty. I did the same thing in college. My first college show was that way. But the play that I thought was a good one was Beggar on Horseback. And the play that I thought could use improvement was High Tour. And then I did, for the non-dramatized thing, I did Mary Poppins. And I didn't finish that because I couldn't figure out how to take a bunch of disparate short stories, even though they involve the same characters and make them into one structure. Which you kind of did with company. Not really, because, yeah, I suppose, I suppose you could do Mary Poppins that way. But no, not really. I don't, I don't know. That's, that's interesting. I'd have to think about that, whether you could do that with Mary Poppins. God knows, you know, I, I found the Disney movie ridiculously incoherent and, and, you know, it wasn't Mary Poppins. It didn't really have the flavor. And also, I don't think they solved the problem of how to make the stories into one coherent story. All they do is pad it with a love story, which doesn't belong there. So, I don't know. Maybe you could do it in, in the company version. The trouble with that is the company had a real springboard, which is it had one central character viewing a group of other characters. I don't know who the central character in the Mary Poppins stories would be. You wouldn't want to tell it from Mary Poppins' point of view because that would take all the magic out of it. And so the real characters that you see through the eyes of the two kids. Now, the, the, the Cameron McIntosh musical tries to make Mr. Banks, the father, a central character and try to give it some coherence by having him undergo a change of character as a result of the events. Of the, but P.L. Travers didn't mean Mr. Banks to be the central character, and he isn't. And that, to me, is false and forced. The two kids have to be the central characters, and I don't know that you could do a company-type structure. I think you would have to find, like, an Alice in Wonderland structure. Right. Alice in Wonderland is from one point of view, and she has a series of disparate adventures, but Alice in Wonderland has never been successfully done as a show or as a play, because, again, it doesn't cohere. It just is. It's the worst of picaresque. It goes from incident to incident to incident, and like Candide, which is the same problem. Each incident has to be better than the one before or more entertaining, or else there's an anticlimax because there's no nothing pulling you through. There's no goal to reach. They're just a series of incidents. And it just doesn't make dramatic sense. It's fun to read as a book, but it's not, not fun to see on the stage, at least I don't think so, or in the movies, unless you can find a way of making it a story. Well, on something like Roadshow, Bounce slash Roadshow, you are telling the disparate Stories mm -hmm. of individuals, mm -hmm. but I guess it's leading toward it leading, but it's it's about their relationship, and what it does is it resolves itself in their relationship. They have different adventures, but it's always about the two of them and their evolving and changing relationship. I mean, that's the intention, anyway. Stephen Sondheim, you make a great point in the book, and again, it's something that happens in novel writing: uh, theatrical truth versus logical truth. In a novel, that would be facts versus truth. The idea that you have to kind of bend the rules a little to make it work theatrically. Well, you do a lot of compression theatrically, obviously, and in movies, too. You, you don't take the time that you can take in a novel. Uh, you can't fill in the kinds of details that you can in a novel. You have to take sort of highlights from the characters' lives because they have to be scenes, and you can't sit around and just describe something or describe an atmosphere. The atmosphere has to play into the story. and I think you have to keep, in narrative, in narrative forms, anyway, you have to keep things going. There are review forms, which company is a hybrid of. But in the narrative form, each incident has to lead to the next incident. Each character has to interact with one character, which caroms, causes a change in other relationships. And that's what keeps surprising an audience and holding an audience's interest. Theatrical truth is also sometimes a matter of timing. Would she really have done that before she did that? Well, in the theater, yes. In real life, no. When you're looking back on those early works, which do you think is the most successful from the standpoint of 2010? The only show that's close to perfection is Assassins. That's the only one I can think of where there's almost nothing I would want to change. All the other shows have things I wish I could have figured out how to fix or 
I see now are things that should be fixed. Only Assassins sort of comes out unscathed. You were an assistant on Allegro, Rogers and Hammerstein's flop. Cameron McIntosh said to you at one point that it seems like all you're ever trying to do is fix Allegro. And I sometimes get the idea that maybe now you're thinking in the same way about Merrily we were all along. Well, first of all, we fixed Merrily. I'm not thinking okay. about that at all. We all fixed right. that in 1993, at least to my satisfaction, and to George's, uh, George Firth, who wrote it. No, that was a matter of tinkering with the show till we got it the way we wanted it because it had such a brief and troubled New York presentation. We never got around to doing the work we wanted to do. We did some, but there wasn't enough time to do all the work. And then also in 1985, James Lapine did a production of it, and that changed the whole thing because he, he really was not only directing it, but was like a dramaturg. He pointed out things about the first half hour that George and I immediately went to work on, and that's what made the show turn the corner and into a good piece. Yeah, I saw that in San Diego. I was very impressed by it. I thought it was a good show. Why didn't it move on? Curiously enough, there were certain cast members that James would like to have changed and certain not, and he felt it was wrong to not take the entire company. And so he hesitated. And it wasn't so much that he was dissatisfied with the performances, but that he thought he had miscast some people. But rather than recast them, he decided not to do it. You were a writer for Topper, the TV show? Yeah, that was my first job, my first paying job. How'd you get that? Oscar Hammerstein was a friend of a guy named George Oppenheimer. And I went to a dinner party and George Oppenheimer was at this dinner party and Oscar had invited me to this dinner party. And I was 21 years old. I'd been living for two years on a scholarship that I'd gotten when I graduated college and the money had run out and I needed a job. And Oscar wasn't really being my agent, but it happened at this dinner party that the subject came up and George was about to start writing this series called Topper, and he needed an assistant writer. So Oscar said, what about And I had written a couple of scripts for television, neither of which had sold, but they were there to be read. And George read them and was impressed enough to say, you want to be my assistant? I didn't want to write for television, but I needed money, and I wanted to earn enough money to get an apartment in New York. So I worked out in L.A. for five months, and we did meaning George and I, we did 11 shows together. That is to say, actually, we alternated shows. Um, he wrote one, and then we would write one together, and then he would write one alone, then we wrote one together. I think I did 11 shows. Some of them are now, we used to be able to get them anyway on videotape. I learned a great deal because to tell a story in four acts in a half hour, knowing that there are commercial breaks, gives you a sense of economy and a sense of storytelling and a sense of how you lay an exposition, how you create little kind of mini curtain scenes. Uh, it was very valuable. So I did that. And then I quit after five months when I had enough money to come back to New York and rent an apartment. Did you also learn about how to deal on some level with how an actor would read your lines as well? No, not as much because I was not on the set very much. We did most of the writing in office. I don't think George was on the set very much either. Remember, those are the days where shows were done very quickly. And each of these was filmed in, I think, maybe two days, maybe three. And then edited in the next day or two. I was tailoring it, however, for given star personalities, or I shouldn't say star, leading lady. The leading players were a married couple named Robert Sterling and Ann Jeffries, and they had very distinctive personalities. So I was writing for them. Among other things, for example, Ann Jeffries had a lot of difficulty pronouncing S's, so I had to keep plurals out of the dialogue as much as possible. And then Leo G. Carroll, who played Topper, who was a very distinctive personality. And Lee Patrick, who played Mrs. Topper, also a distinctive personality. So writing for them, yes, I was writing for personalities, but not really learning an awful lot about acting from an actor's point of view. So did that only come when you were working on Saturday night, or did Saturday night ever reach a point of casting? No, we'd started casting, and then it sort of fell apart. What happened was, went through two phases. The first one, we never got to casting. We did backers auditions, and the producer died. We raised about half the money, and the producer died, and so it went a morning. And then after Gypsy, Julie Stein, who wrote music for Gypsy, was also a producer, and he wanted to produce Saturday Night, and Bob Fosse wanted to direct and star it. And so we started casting, and then I got cold feet, and I said, I can't go back to old work because now I've done both West Side Story and Gypsy in between, and I really wanted to get on with it. So that stopped right there. No, I learned about acting, really, and actors from Arthur Lawrence taking me to the actor's studio when we were writing West Side Story. He wanted me to see acting from an actor's point of view, and that's exactly what the actor's studio was about. And I learned a great deal from that. 
I talk about that in the book. And you talk a little bit, particularly in terms of Glynis Johns tailoring a song to her voice. I mean, how often did that happen? Has that happened over the course of your not, not a lot, but I have. I knew Lane Stritch was going to play Joanne and company, so before I wrote Ladies of Lunch, I knew that actually I, I wrote two songs to entice Angela Lansbury to play Mrs. Lovett and Sweeney Todd, and once she said yes, then I knew I was going to be writing for her. It hasn't happened very often. I'd say maybe three or four times. I'm sure I could think of a couple of others, but those are the two that immediately come to mind. That's different than what I learned at the actor's studio. That's writing for actors or singers' limitations or actors if they have very distinctive personalities. Writing for an actor who does not have a distinctive personality but is merely playing the role is the valuable thing you learn from getting to know how actors approach their craft. And that's what I learned from the actor's studio. You, you know, if somebody... If somebody can't sing above a C, then you don't write above a C. If somebody has a lot of sibilance, then you don't write a lot of S's. If somebody has short breath like Linus, you don't write sustained lines. Those are exigencies. That's not the same thing. Writing for an actor's, uh, for what an actor can do is much subtler. And um, that's what I was talking about. Would you rather have, I, I guess, an, an actor with a limited range of voice rather than a singer with a limited range of acting? I think so. I think so, yeah. A number of your works have become films. Arthur Lawrence, when I interviewed him about a decade ago, said that, in his view, the only films that can work are fantasies. Do you agree with that? I don't know. I might have to think about that. I don't think musicals work on film, period. Film is just not a poetic medium. It's a repertorial medium. When characters break into song after, out of dialogue in film, it's an anomaly, I think, generally. This is a generalization. But I don't think I've ever seen what I would call a successful musical film that really tried to tell a story through song. The successful musical films to me are like the Astaire Rogers movies in which you have essentially a set of comic scenes interrupted by songs that only tangentially have anything to do with the storytelling and are certainly not necessary to it. They are respites, interruptions, their punctuation. The fantasies, I don't know. He's thinking in terms of anything from, say, Top Hat, which takes place in the fantasy Venice... But it doesn't have to tell a story. All of those movies, I don't think they're fantasies. They're entertainments. They're what Lenny would call divertissements. They don't attempt to tell a story through song. So they don't fall into this category. The problem that I've seen in a lot of translations of, say, Broadway shows is that the moment that someone breaks into song, reality becomes fantasy. Yeah, you could say that. And, and on the stage, that is perfectly consistent with what the theater is about. The theater right. is in no way real from the minute you enter it whether it's a, a, a so-called reality play or not. I mean, you know, you try to make it as real as possible, but the fact is that there's a fourth wall missing and the actors are cheating out front, and that's just not real in any way, shape, or form. So the audience understands that when they come into a theater, and it's as if they've signed a contract saying, I understand that this is not going to be real, and therefore I will accept, and therefore I will use my imagination and imagine that these are real emotions and real stories. And as such... That works. But when it comes time to West Side Story, I mean, Lawrence said that no matter how much you like Jerome Robbins' choreography, you're never going to see gang members dancing down the streets of New York. Right, and you're never going to hear dialogue like that spoken by anybody in real life. You've said that for all the movies made from your work, that you're happiest with Sweeney mm -hmm. Todd. Yes, I am. I think you really made a film out of it. And he found a way, one of the ways was cutting out all the chorus stuff so that all the stuff is essentially internal, uh, that is say, that though the characters are often singing to each other. It's essentially close up. And he set up the style right in the first line. And if you accept that style, then I think it's a very successful movie. There are people who wouldn't accept it anyway. Also, Sweeney Todd is what I guess Arthur would call a fantasy. It's not real, um, wasn't meant to be real on the stage. It's a melodrama of the most over-the-top sort. And as in opera, it's way, way beyond anything real. You would never tell a story like that and expect it to be taken seriously as a play, only as a melodrama. Also, I think that's the only kind of thing that makes good opera, you know. Uh, I think operas have to be written in other kingdoms and other times with kings and queens. And I think as soon as people attempt to make them real, I, for me, they don't work. But it's certainly true in the movies, which is such a realistic medium. And I think that Sweeney Todd works very well because it's such a flamboyant story. How do you feel about... The videotaping, the, the recording of shows like uh, Sunday in the Park with George or the original Sweeney Todd. 
Oh, they're fine if you understand that they are records. They're archival records of plays and musicals is what they are. They don't attempt to be filming. And you make the same contract with one of those that you make when you go into the theater. You know what you're watching is a theater performance. You see theater scenery. And right away, you know you're not in a real street. You're in a, in a cardboard street. And so it doesn't pretend to be anything except the filming of a play, the re recording of a play. And so I don't think they're comparable at all to movies. What's your feeling about original cast albums? I know, of course, the famous truncated cast version of Follies that oh, was yeah. recorded in a day, yeah. which is one of the tragedies. Yeah. How do you feel generally about that as some kind of substitute for the play itself? Or how do you look at those? I think cast recorders, when they're, when they're good ones, are wonderful. I mean, it's fun to listen to at home. It's not, I don't think they're comparable experiences. It's not that one is even better than the other or more, even more fulfilling than the other. If a whole show, if the libretto and the score come together in the performances, then obviously it's a much more full experience to see a show than just to hear the excerpts, which are called songs. But as such, I don't think it's a theatrical experience. Hearing a re recording of songs, I don't see any different whether they're songs all from one score of a show or a group of songs by a rock group or a group of songs sung by, you know, um, Barbara Streisand. It's just a group of songs. And if they are from one particular score, they have a sort of coherence. It's almost like a song cycle, a group of songs about a given subject in one given tone. You didn't, in uh, Finishing the Hat, discuss your work at all on the 1973 production of Candide. How involved were I'm gonna you? Do, I'm going to do that in the second okay. volume. I'm, I'm going to have a chapter of things like that uh, where, I, where I wrote songs for other projects. So that's going to include Evening Primrose yeah, or, exactly. or uh, all, that, all that stuff, yeah. And, and because I just added a few songs to uh, the score of Candide, I didn't want to devote a whole chapter to it. Starting with Merrily... We roll along, and Sunday in the Park, and I think Roadshow as well. There seems to be kind of a fascination with the relationship of art and commerce. It dates right back to Beggar on Horseback. Beggar on Horseback is exactly about that. I wrote that when I was a sophomore in college. So obviously it's something I liked to write about. Not a pull, because then I spent many, many, many decades not writing about it. So it's hardly an obsessive thing. And, you know, I would argue that those three shows are... Certainly, Merrily is, is about the pull between art and commerce, and Merrily is very much like Beggar on Horseback from that point of view. Roadshow is really more about entrepreneurship in the United States. It's not so much about art. It's not so much that Addison was an artist, but that he was a maker. He was a builder, and Wilson was a promoter. And those two aspects of this country, uh, it's one of the things that, that defines America, I think. And what was the third one you mentioned? Sunday the part with George? Yeah, there's stuff about the pull between art and commerce and that, absolutely. Stephen Sondheim, you were also a clapper boy on Beat the Devil, which means you spent time with John Huston? Mm-hmm, I did indeed. And Bogart, you and met I, them? Uh, yes, oh yes, indeed. Yes. Bogart took a fancy to me and it was very nice to me. He invited me on to, went afterwards to movie set of K-Mutiny. It's my first time on a Hollywood movie set. I've been obviously on the Beat the Devil movie set, but that was in Italy. Well, first of all, Bogart was a chess player, and I was a chess player, and he had nobody to play chess with. He was much better than I, but at least he had somebody to play with. He also liked me, and, and Houston did too, and I don't know, there's nothing much more to say about that. I, I had a good time, and I'm a movie buff, and always have been. I was brought up on movies, as opposed to radio, and uh, they, they were my thing, and certainly as opposed to theater. My essential entertainment bringing up is, is movies. You talk a lot in the book, Finishing the Hat, about... Finding the right property, which the songs will enhance it or take it in new directions. How do you determine that? Or is it something that's kind of internal to whatever artist? No, you got to track to a story and then in examining it, you decide whether songs will merely decorate it or whether they can in some way, to use your word, enhance and maybe even, even more than enhance, expand or look at it from different ways. I mean... You could say, look, there's Romeo and Juliet and there's West Side Story. There, well, or better yet, there's there's Lilium and there's Carousel. Or even more pointed, uh, there's Oklahoma and there's Green Row, the Lilacs, the play from which it was taken, which is a play about homosexuality in the Western Plains. And that's not what Oklahoma's about. And you could say that Oscar took a rather grim play and made it into a lighthearted romp. Or you could say that he took 
an aspect of the play and expanded it, the pioneering spirit of the country that's in the play. So the point is, a story appeals to you, and it seems to me important to decide or to know that the songs are somehow going to be necessary to the new version, as opposed to merely decorations on the old version. And that's something I think you only discover either as you write it or hopefully before that, you discover as you're talking about it with the librettist and planning it. You hope because you don't want to spend a lot of time. I, I've often said that it takes just as much time to write a wrong song as it does to write a right one. It's easy enough to recognize a bad song, but not so easy to recognize a wrong song. How far have you gotten into anything without suddenly throwing up your hands and saying this won't work? I'm not sure that's ever happened. It must have, but I can't think of any. Generally, my instincts have been, at least for myself, pretty good. But I can think of one or two examples where it didn't get beyond a couple of first talking right. sessions. You sort of know very soon. Also, it has to do with making a rapport with your collaborator. And the two of you have to be as enthusiastic and be sure that you're writing the same show and on the same train. There's a great danger with people that you like writing with that one or the other will drag the other one into a project. That's happened. The frogs. No, no, no I loved it. Really. Oh, oh, no, 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 no. I thought that the frogs were just, we had no time to really work on it. And, you know, I did it as a favor, but the only thing that made it an unpleasant experience was Robert Brewster and lack of time. So it would have been, do I hear a waltz? With the yeah, music. do I hear a waltz? With that was a waste of my time, and I allowed myself to get talked into that. Well, oddly enough, I saw a 42nd Street Moon performance here of it, and it actually is was a lot better than I thought it would oh, be. Oh, it's not a bad show. It's not a bad show. It's just an unnecessary one. There, there is actually a very good example. There is a show that does not improve or enhance or expand on or enrich the original play. It is the original play with songs. That's not enough. Well, when you're looking at Broadway today, it seems like most of the shows that are based on films don't seem to have that purpose either. That's correct. No <laughs> argument there. Stephen Sondheim, a few more things that I've been curious about, one of which is that I have British versions of a number of your shows, and somehow, and maybe it's my ear, they all seem a little less melodic. Melodic? Since I don't hear them that way, I can't help you out. We could compare two given performances of any given song or something like that, and I might hear differences, but I think that that's just the difference between two performers. I don't think there's any more difference between an American performance and a British performance than there is the original cast album and the revival cast album. You make a point about <clears throat> lyricists showing off how they should stick to their guns. And yet at the same time, some of my favorite lyrics of yours are showing off. A friend of mine, for instance, loves the lyric, but with a schlitz in her mitts down at Fitzroy's bar, she thinks of the Rizzo, it's so schizo. That's, that's a pastiche of a song that would have been written in the 1930s when lyric writers showed off. That's exactly why it's there. I would never write something like that if I were trying to convey a real thought. In terms of, of a show like Passion, which is very, very character-driven, that may be your most, I don't want to say your most character-driven show, but it seems that a show that's more focused on character and how they relate. No, I, th I think what, what gives you that impression is that there aren't any show-off songs. Anything from that score sounds like it's from that that's score. That's true, that's true. It is one stuff. Well, I, you know, I said a number of times that what I meant it to be was one long rhapsody. So I, I hear it as one long song. Is that one of the reasons that at least the version I saw, I saw in previews did not have an intermission? Uh, no, it's the kind of story that should not. The only times I had an intermission was the first London production. It was a mistake. No, it's, it's a relentless story, and it's a mood piece. And I think if you let the audience off the hook, the, let them go out and into, I was going to say, and have a smoke. Nobody does that anymore. But ha have a drink in the intermission and then ask them to, reinvest themselves in the show, I think it might be impossible. I felt that we felt the same thing about Follies. Uh, Follies does not work as well with an intermission as it does without an intermission. There are some stories that you don't want to interrupt, and but passion in particular, because, you know, it doesn't have a lot of plot, and it doesn't have a lot of incident, but it has a great deal of mood and emotional uh, development. Um, interrupting it, I think, absolutely would cut the string in the middle. Couldn't be. I saw a version in San Jose of Follies, and what I don't know where that came from, but what they did in the intermission was they finished the song, Who's That Woman? Mm -hmm. and then they started Act Two. 
in the middle of who's that yeah, woman. That's, that's been done before. You give critiques of various lyricists. At the top of the list, you rate DuBose Hayward's work on Porgy and Bess, as well as Dorothy Fields and maybe Irving Berlin. Would you and say Cole Porter and Yip Harburg. Yeah, but you also you also have more complaints about them, I think. I don't have a lot of complaints about Dorothy Fields, simply because, I know how about Frank Lesser? I don't have a lot of complaints about him either. Harburg and Porter wrote many more shows. That's one of the, one of the reasons. And also, Dorothy Fields, is, uh, I was so interested in putting her up in the pantheon, because she's not very often mentioned when people mention the, the best lyric writers or the most important lyric writers of the history of musical theater. I think that may be one, one of the reasons. DuBose Hayward only wrote 15 or 18 or 20 lyrics, so there isn't a lot to, to there. I think his work is impeccable, but it's all on one score, you know. If he'd written anything else, it might have been a little more impeccable. I think they are generally so good, those, those writers, and they, they represent all the virtues that I, I find in lyric writing. In the introduction, you talk a lot about how near rhyme is Maybe the laziest kind of songwriting. It is. It is very lazy, but it, you know, it's it's accepted in pop songwriting. I think on the stage, it's not good because it's not effective. It doesn't guide the ear as well, and it doesn't make lines land as cleanly and it, with as much effect. It's blurred. It, it makes for a blurred stage effect. It's blurry in the theater. Just it makes lines land like wet washcloths. I think it hurts a good idea or a good joke to rhyme it uh, approximately. Over the past seven or eight years, we've got this melisma crazy singing. And I just wonder, is it possible to have a musical play with songs which work within the context of the musical when an artist is showing off how many uh, octaves they could sing on every note? Have you ever seen an opera? You've just defined opera. (laughs) And how do you feel about that? I don't enjoy opera. Stephen Sondheim. You've said that you're a very slow reader, but then in, in reading Finishing the Hat, you make mention of several books that Ulysses is one of your favorite books. Well, I studied that. What I did in college, because I'm not a reader, I took every, every novel course I could get my hands on, and I, I actually signed up as an extracurricular course because it was a six-week in Ulysses, taught by a very brilliant professor, at least I thought he was. I sat on it because I thought, i got to find out what everybody's talking about. What is this book? It was a riveting course, and it's a riveting book. So I studied that book. I can't even say I read it. I studied it with guidance. Actually, I think probably if I were to introduce somebody, Ulysses, I'd say, read it, and I don't care how baffled you are, just read it, and then take this guide and let him guide you through it. It's a hard read in many ways, but it's a really funny book, and if somebody is gently guiding you through it, it's not such a hard read, and it's just so dazzling. If you enjoy words the way I do, the way James Joyce did, then it's wonderful. How did The Last of Sheila come about? Oh, Herbie Ross was, that's Herbert Ross, was a choreographer, became a movie director. He choreographed Anyone Can Whistle. So I knew him. We were friends, and I had once said to him, he said, why don't you write a play? I said, I've done it. Much too hard to write a play, and if I ever did, anyway, the only kind of interested in writing would be murder mysteries, and they don't do them on Broadway anymore. You know, those are all done on television. So he became a very successful movie director, and then he said, I want to do a murder mystery, so how would you like to write one? I said, well, I don't really want to write one, but I'll outline one for you. And he said, no, I want you to write it. So I called my friend Anthony Perkins, who was a murder mystery buff the way I was. Also, I knew him to be a good writer because I received letters from him. Had you met him uh, Evening Primrose? Uh, evening Primrose. Actually, I knew him socially. We had mutual friends in West Side Story. So I'd actually met him a couple of times. But no, I didn't know him. I got to know him during Evening Primrose. And, and then we became good friends. So he said, sure, let's do it. So that's what we did. The plot was set in Long Island during a fierce winter storm, and all the characters were isolated in this sort of compound of houses. So I outlined the whole thing and gave it to Herbie, and he said, this is a swell plot. I said, but Long Island? That's so dreary. Set it in the French Riviera so we can all get a free trip to the French Riviera. (laughs) So that's what we did, and we got a free trip to the French Riviera. That's the way they make movies. Follies opens with... A long musical introduction, which is the music of a song called All Things Bright and Beautiful, that was cut. Was that always going to be there, that there was going to be? No, no. All Things Bright and Beautiful was in an early version of the script that got changed because the climax of the first, before Hal Prince got over, the climax of the play, 
It was a fantasy, but it was a realistic fantasy. In other words, it was a flashback. And All Things Bright and Beautiful became part of that sequence. A little too boring to explain, but the ladies were going to actually put on a show for the husbands at the party at the beach of this climax. And they get all the old costumes out of the cellar, et cetera, et cetera. And they start to put on a show. And Ben sang All Things Bright and Beautiful to Sally. And Sally sang back sort of their big romantic duet before the show began. And the show within the show. And then, the, then there was this traumatic flashback, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That was all cut. And when we decided to make the folly sequence, surreal sequence of everybody having a nervous breakdown. And so we had an opening, which was a collage. I wanted a collage, literally, of all the themes. I, I've always wanted to steal the opening of the Circe chapter in Ulysses, where you have an overture that doesn't make any sense until you hear what the whole thing's about. So you'd hear flashes, oral flashes of old tap routines and Carlotta singing and the directors talking. So it was a combination of sound and dialogue and song. And we went into a recording studio and made an elaborate recording. It was about a six-minute collage of stuff. We tried, And we opened in Boston with it, and it didn't work. Uh, the audience was just confused. And so we had a, had a meeting about it. And Michael said, you know, I think I could do this all in dance. And so he, he asked to hear all the music that I'd written for the show that wasn't in the show. So that he said, let's have something that is not going to be reprised in the show, but it's just me. And he heard, heard me play just like the first four bars of all things Brian Newby. He said, that's it. That's what, that's what it should be. In some ways, maybe in retrospect or just in my brain, it kind of parallels, say, the opening of Carousel, where you've got a melody that's not heard through the rest of the show and then an huh. opening. Never thought of it. Yeah, I suppose you could make that analogy. Sure. Yeah. How did you get involved with Alain, Rene, and Stavisky? Uh, he just called me and said, would I do the score for his movie? He always liked what I what I wrote. And it turned out, uh, as a matter of fact, that every day when they came on the set of the movie, he was playing Little Night Music. That's what he used for the actors to get in the mood of his movie. Stephen Sondheim, when we were exchanging emails about a year ago, you were working on uh, giving notes for a Little Night Music, the very successful revival on Broadway. Mm -hmm. When you're giving those kind of notes, taking those kind of notes, what exactly are you writing? Well, all kinds of things. I go check the show every few weeks, and I went back two nights ago to check the new cast. I mean, it's not the first time. But, you know, it's, you know, it's Bernadette Peters and Elaine Stritch. And I was taking notes on everything from pace, which is the big thing in, in this particular, because it's a leisurely show, and so you want to be very careful that the pace doesn't get too slow. Because the actors, they're really, really, really good performances. And there's a lot of nuance going on in, on that stage, which does not often happen in musicals. But the price they're paying is they are taking a little too much time with each nuance. So it's, it's, getting, it's getting slightly logy. It's that kind of thing. But it's also so-and-so is not emphasizing this word. So-and-so has moved upstage and is blocking so-and-so from the right-hand side of the orchestra. Uh, the orchestra is too loud here. This tempo is too slow. As somebody is not phrasing that too much, they're taking too much rubato. It's awful. That's always a problem as a show goes on in performances that, particularly, again, a, a, a score like this, there's much too much rubato, which is, you know, taking liberties with the rhythm of melody lines going on. People start talking lines instead of singing them because they're trying to emphasize them. As a show gets older and older, the audiences get squarer and squarer. That is said that they get many more tourists and a show like this actors tend to punch the lines home because the audience isn't responding in as lively a way as the earlier audiences did. And if I were an actor, I would tend to do that too. But in fact, the audience was merely listening and having a very good time <laughs> and very rapt, which you can tell because they're not applauding and laughing as much during the course of the evening, but they're all screaming and leaping to their feet at the end. So they have had a good time. So it's things like that. But sometimes it's big stuff, like an actor will have changed the tone of a scene and started to play it either too comically or, you know. So there can be big things like that, and, and pacing, as I say, can be big. But mostly, mostly it's just details. In previews, how much are you looking at what the audience is doing? I'm only interested in, in whether things are clear to the audience. If they understand what's going on stage, what your intention is, what the story is, who the characters are, what their relationships are, then if they like it, wonderful. And if they don't like it, I'm disappointed. But it's very dangerous to gauge an audience's reaction 
on the amount of laughter and applause. You can always build a hand, and most, most shows now build all their numbers to huge hands. That doesn't necessarily mean that the audience is having a good time. Well, how did you know, for instance, I guess you'll go into it in the second book, but how did you know, for instance, that Bounce needed a major reworking? Oh, well, because, because we, I, John and I, said this is not the show, this is not the tone of the show we wanted, this is not the show we wanted, and the, the introduction of this extraneous character, which is something that developed when Hal Prince came in on it, the, the leading lady, because he felt that there wasn't enough sex in the show, really skewed the story. The story is about two brothers, and it was no longer about two brothers. It was about two brothers and this lady, and the real love story is between the two brothers. So there's no point in, in putting a, a woman in there and trying to make it a sort of emotional triangle. It was wrong. It was wrong. So the show had no focus as a story. That seemed very clear. That was clear before we got it in front of an audience. That was clear uh, when when, the sh- when we were running through the show. By then, it's too late. Was there any uh, much revision? I know there was another song added for um, the Broadway version of Assassins compared to the... No, it was, that was added for London. But that that's if you're talking about something you just broke. I meant that for broad, uh, because we thought the show was going to transfer, we hoped. And it seemed like it would transfer from off-Broadway to Broadway. And I'd always want to write that song. Didn't have time to write it for the... Playwrights Horizon production, but started to work on it on the assumption that the show was going to transfer. Then the show didn't transfer, so I, I, I think I completed the song anyway. Then it was when it was done in London, Sam Mendes, who directed it, heard the song and said, of course, that's very necessary song to show. So it w- wasn't so much added, it was always intended. If I were to find a score that's kind of unknown well it is pretty much unknown but i kind of like it and it's recent would be the newer stuff from the frogs i think the mistake with that was that it the, 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 as with the original the show it, it should not be that kind of a length of a show i think the show as it was originally written which is like an hour and 15 minutes an hour and 20 minutes is the right length for that piece there's a political element to a number of your shows imperialism in japan for pacific overtures Capitalism, Selling Out, and Merrily and George. And Roadshow. West Side Story, of course, Gang Warfare. On the subtextual level, are you looking at the political life in the United States, or does that No, just the seem- only, first of all, most shows imply politics, even if they're just social politics or even personal politics. The only overt political stuff that I've written are the, one, are the shows with John Wyman. Assassins is overtly political. And Pacific Ocean is overtly political. And Roadshow is overtly political. Uh, those are the ones. The others, yes, you can say that they're, they're political. That was not uppermost, nor did I hasten that. John and I don't sit down to write a, let's write a political show. It's just that John's tendency is the right word, but his attraction to political material is very intense. And I think when John starts to think up stories he wants to tell, they tend to be with a capital P, political. Someone in a Tree for a long time was my favorite song of yours, and then it was kind of fun to find out it was your favorite song. You talk a a bit about it, but what what struck me the most is that you're telling a story, but you're doing it obliquely throughout the entire thing. Listening to the song about ten times, and, and it may require that much, you realize that all of the information is there on what exactly happened in the treaty house. Oh, absolutely, no. But that's true of that whole... One of the things I love about Pacific Ocean is Chrysanthemum Tea, of course, is a fantasy, right. although it has a basis of truth, but it's not that. But indeed, that is what happened at the treaty house, and the Admiral's number is exactly what happened, chronologically, which countries came in, what they demanded from the Japanese, etc., etc. So as history lessons, both those numbers really are defendable. Stephen Sondheim, Broadway Today, what do you see? I see the usual thing that's gotten worse over the years, which is the economic bind, which prevents producers from taking a chance on anything they don't think is safe. And what they think is safe is what they call the jukebox musical, where the audience knows the songs before they come into the theater, and therefore they're humming them on the way, and they feel comfortable with what they're hearing. Or a song that comes with some kind of branding, like the Disney titles, You know, Beauty and the Beast, the title alone will sell tickets. And sometimes, in the case of Tarzan, they don't sell enough tickets. But that's, nevertheless, that's what the producers think will sell. So nobody is taking a chance on on unknowns. Nobody is doing anything original, unless, of course, it starts off Broadway and gets official imprimaturs from 
the critics, as in the case of, you know, Next to Normal and Spring Awakening and Rent and, you know. So those are the only chances that new work is ever going to come to Broadway now is if they start in smaller theaters, get noticed, get praised, and then come in with some kind of guarantee for the producer. So to that degree, it's, you know, a place like Berkeley Rep or for, ACT. Yeah, know. sure. Do you see a younger audience coming in? You know, I think there is a younger audience for some of these new shows, and maybe even there's a younger audience for some of the jukebox musicals, particularly rock musicals, you know. They like those songs, so they come in and see them. Whether that encourages them to go to any further shows or not, I don't know. Do you like those shows, the ones you mentioned? I don't talk at all about shows that are written by living people. If I say I like this one, it implies I don't like the others. People's feelings will get hurt. So you're very careful? No, I'm scrupulously careful about it. A friend of mine, he's a elementary school music teacher, and it was his theory that a boy like that from West Side Story, that the music was written by you, and as you point out in Finishing the Hat, Bernstein obviously did, but what he landed on was the fact that it's the only song in that show where you wrote the lyrics first. Do you think that that made any difference in how Bernstein uh, Not at all, not at all, not at all. Matter of fact, the rhythm I had in mind when I wrote it was entirely different than the rhythm that he came up with. <laughs> no, not at all, not at all. There was a song, you know, Krupke was, all the music was written first, but those are the only two in which one was written first and the other was written second. Although a lot of tunes, there, there is a lot of music in West Side Story that came from other shows that Lenny had written, but those are the two where it was almost a completely formed piece. When you're working on a new show, are you starting with lyrics? Or are you starting with music? Are no, you starting with idea? You How start with work? ideas, sure. You start by talking to the book writer at great length and just determining how songs will work and what they might be about. Do you have anything that is in process at some level at this point that we might see when you're uh, finished with Volume mm, 2? No, I'm, I've been nibbling at a couple of ideas, but no, I haven't gotten far enough to commit myself to anything, no. I'm really concentrating on the book because I can only concentrate on one thing at a time. I'm just one of those people who can't do two things at once. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com. And feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.